We turn in our Bibles today to Exodus chapter 14. Thank you, Don Parker, one of our elders, for your remarks earlier in the service. As you look at him, it's hard to believe he's an elder, isn't it? He looks so non-elderly. But he is, and he's a godly man, and we appreciate his leadership in our church. Exodus 14 deals with the crossing of the Red Sea. You know, occasionally an event occurs which is so significant as a piece of history or which so touches the human psyche that it moves the heart and the hand of the poet. Events, tragic events even, like the uh, assassination of John Kennedy or of Martin Luther King or the sinking of the Titanic. These events are the kind that uh, you remember where you were when they happened. You know, that kind of a thing. And they're often such significant things that those who are gifted that way write poems about them. These happenings capture the attention and the emotion of, of many people so that they become the focal points of cultural history, if not national history and world history. Such an event was the crossing of the Red Sea. It was so significant that it captured the imagination of poets in that day. It is mentioned or alluded to in poems or psalms 18, 74, 77, 78, 89, 106, and 136. So significant was the crossing of the Red Sea that it further captured the attention of the nations throughout that part of the world. And those who were confronted with the Israelites' pilgrimage as they journeyed toward Canaan were terrorized by it. Let me remind you of what Rahab the harlot had to say in the book of Joshua. You just listen as I, I read. Remember, she's speaking to the spies that were sent ahead whom she hid. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And so this event was one that terrorized those nations that were confronted by Israel as she journeyed up toward that place that God had called her to inhabit. The crossing of the Red Sea, I think, was the most notable miracle ever to occur in the history of Israel. Army generals and God's prophets alike pointed back to the crossing of the Red Sea when exhorting the people to follow the Lord. In Exodus chapter 14, Israel was in the midst of a transition during those early days after the deliverance of the nation from Egyptian bondage. Yes, they were in transition. There was transition from serving Pharaoh to serving God. In transition from bondage to liberty. In transition from living by sight to living by faith. 
And I think that all of us would agree that those early days after our redemption, after our conversion, were days of transition. And we have to keep that in mind for people who are newly saved. That they are in the midst of transition and we cannot expect of them some things that we might expect out of people who are more mature in the Lord, who are further along in their own pilgrimage. The newly redeemed need our understanding and our patience because they're in transition, just as Israel was in transition. But then isn't it true that the Christian life, or even life in general, involves transition? There is transition from youth to young adulthood. There are times when you think your teenagers are not going to make that transition. They are terminally teenagers. But they do, somehow. And then there is transition from early adulthood, young adulthood, to middle-aged adulthood, like John Benham. And then there is transition from that to the status of being a senior citizen. Life is a transition from one stage to the other. I was reminded of that this week as I had to make a quick trip to Kansas for a funeral on Friday for an uncle who passed away. He did not know the Lord, as far as I know, nor do any of his family know the Lord, my cousins. They did not know a pastor. Four boys, four wives or children, some of them grown and married. They did not know a pastor. And so they called me and asked if I would do the service. I, I don't relish that sort of a situation for family members. It's difficult, as you can imagine, especially in those circumstances. But I went. And it was an opportunity to uh, be reunited with my two brothers and two sisters. And we were sitting around the table after the funeral at my sister's house, uh, having had a bit of supper. And we were talking about things. And we found ourselves talking about uh, relatives that were distant from us. And uh, talking about people who used to live near us in the neighborhood and where they've moved and how they were related to this person or that person, all of a sudden it just struck me. And I stopped them and I said, you know what we sound like? We sound like grandpa and grandma used to sound like when we were kids. And we hated those conversations. And now here we are talking the same way. There's transition in life. And then we make the transition from that educational part of our life to employment hopefully. And then perhaps from one job to another we make transitions and then finally we make the transition into retirement. Life often involves a transition in living from place to place. And every transition of life involves change. What I want to plead with you today is to make Jesus Christ the Lord of every change in your life. As we look at our text today, it seems to me there are several changes that occur in Israel, in this text that we look at, Exodus 14, because the nation is in transition. In the first place, in verses 1 and 2, there is a change in the direction of the journey. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Piharioth. And so there was a change in the direction of the journey. In fact, it was almost a reversal of their steps. God had led them down to the southeast, and now they're going back basically to the north and to the west. What is God doing? Well, God is leading them to a place of vulnerability. That's right. God has led them to reverse direction and camp in the very place that would be a trap to them. God did not lead them to safety. God led them to danger. A change of direction. Now, why has God done this? Well, God had a purpose in it, of course, because God wanted to teach them again of his mighty power. He wanted to perform a miracle before them that would be forever written in the annals of their nation's history and which would send a message to all of those nations to which and through which Israel would travel in days to come. God wanted to place Israel in a predicament from which it was impossible to escape except by his divine intervention. So God changed direction. You know that God is more concerned that we learn of him than he is that our lives be always lived in pleasant places. Character precedes comfort in God's priorities for us. I want to repeat that. Character precedes comfort in God's priorities for us. There are times when God in our pilgrimage will lead us in a change that brings us to the point of danger where we have no way out of a situation. And God has a purpose in that. He wants to teach us something of himself. It may be that there's someone here this morning who has sought God's direction in your life. And you followed that as much as you knew how to discern it. You say, well, how do we discern God's direction? Well, God today doesn't guide us with a cloud like he did the Israelites. Today God guides us through the counsel of his word, through the presence of the indwelling spirit, and through our own faith and assurance in his sovereign control of our circumstances. But I may be speaking to someone today who has utilized those and as much as you have known, you have been in God's will and yet today you find yourself trapped just as much as Israel was trapped at the Red Sea with Egyptian border guards in one direction, a vast desert in the other, a sea in front of them, and the armies of Pharaoh coming from behind, and no way out except God. Please understand that God has you in that place, not that you may be destroyed, but that he may show himself mighty on your behalf. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6.
a change in direction. And then I notice that there is a change in the heart of the enemy, described in verses 3 through 9. Originally, Pharaoh was willing to allow them to be released, but that willingness to release them turned to regret after the Egyptians had buried their dead. God says in verse 3, Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. Now, why would he think that? Well, here they've gone down this direction, and now they've gotten so turned around, they're coming right back the same direction. That's how Pharaoh would perceive it. The wilderness has shut them in. They've gotten lost out there in the desert. Thus, the God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God has been saying that a few times, hasn't he, over the last year or so. But God has one more miracle that is going to be absolutely devastating to the military might of Egypt. Well, what God said came true, of course. And it says in verse 9, the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them, camping by the sea. So you get the picture. The guards of Israel look behind, and in the distance, they see the dust of many, many chariots coming, and they find themselves in a trap because the heart of the enemy changed. You say, well, isn't God unfair in this? After all, isn't it God's fault that Pharaoh had the attitude that he did? No. You see, God was simply responding to the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had hardened his heart and hardened his heart, and God had hardened it judicially. We've talked about that before, and this is another example of it. Pharaoh's heart changed of its own accord, of its own evil, its own wicked motives. And God hardened his heart more so that he would not turn back from the pursuit of the Jewish people. Pharaoh, in this account, is but the stand-in for the real enemy of God's people, who is whom? Of course, Satan. The devil plays with those who are in his captivity. Something like a cat and mouse. I watched a cat on the farm last summer play with a mouse. Batted around. You've seen them do that, haven't you? And they bite it and carry it a little way, but they don't bite it enough to kill it because they're playing with that mouse. It was a little baby mouse, just able to get around. And it was in the dark, and the cat would bat it this way, and it would run a little bit, and he would pounce on it, carry it over here, and play with it some more. It reminded me of the devil. That's how he does with the souls of those who are in his captive. He uses them. He deceives them. The satanic world system, or the order that now controls things in history from the human perspective, that world system provides an atmosphere of acceptance for its own citizens. That acceptance is based upon deceit and greed, hatred, self-interest, but nonetheless, there is a camaraderie within the world system for its own. When you and I are saved by the grace of God, we are delivered by the power of God from Satan's bondage in the world system. 
We're no longer a part of that thing. Therefore, Satan loses his control over us. Although we live in the sphere where he's active, we have now become his enemies. We are not the citizens of his little kingdom, but we have become the enemy within it. And so his attitude changes toward us. Whereas once it was condescending and it was agreeable to some degree, now he is bitterly opposed to us. And he causes the whole system that he controls to turn on us. Jesus described this, didn't he? In John 15, when he said, Don't be surprised if the world system hates you. Know this, that it hated me before it hated you. The world system hates us with the same vehemence with which it hates Jesus Christ. Once... Being its citizens, we were accepted. But now we are rejected, being citizens of a higher kingdom. Once we were tolerated. But now we have become unbearable to the enemy. His heart has changed toward you, my friend. Some people think that when they become Christians, then they get out of the battle. No, no, no. When you become a Christian, you step into the battle. Because Satan now desires the absolute destruction of your life if he possibly can do it. Therefore, it's imperative that you and I not play around with him. That we not go back to the cat and let him play with us. That we not play into his evil hands. That's why Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks around seeking whom he may devour. You see, he is an adversary to us. His attitude has changed. Just as surely as Pharaoh's attitude changed toward the people of Israel. But I see a third change as we look at this time of transition. It is the change that occurs in the cry of the people, verses 10 and 12 of our text. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now they had been crying out to the Lord before this. For years, in fact, they had cried out to the Lord, Lord, save us! Deliver us from the Egyptian oppression! But now their cry changes. It's no longer, Lord, deliver us from the Egyptian oppression. That's not the thrust of it. They cried out to the Lord, but the, the, the one to whom the crying out was directed really was to Moses, God's representative. And they said, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? As I pointed out a few weeks ago, this is biting sarcasm. Because Egypt is famous for its graves. Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Didn't we tell you, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. There's a change in the cry of the people. 
First it was a cry for help. Now it's a cry of complaint. Why is this? Because they're walking by sight. Notice that they saw the Egyptians. They beheld them. And it changed their cry. They forgot the promises of God. They forgot the previous works of God. And here we see the real condition of their heart exposed by the words of their mouth. Isn't that always the way it is? You listen to a person long enough and he'll tell you what's inside of him. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So all you have to do is listen to what a person says, see what he talks about, see what his complaint is, and you find out what the heart is saying. And I think it's true that heart problems among God's people are often exposed by their attitude toward leadership, as it was here with Moses. When people have a spiritual problem with God, it's often sent in the same direction that it was here. When things go well, the people of Israel follow Moses without complaint. But when there is a trial, when the circumstances change at God's doing, not Moses, then their words changed. Next, I notice a change in the ways of nature. This is the best part of the chapter, verses 13 through 29. I want to tell you something. God will move heaven and earth to keep his word. God is not a liar. God does not change in his oaths and his promises. God had promised to bring his people to the promised land. And even though their unbelief is exposed by their cry of complaint and grumbling, God is gracious to them. Through Moses, his prophet, these are the words. Do not fear, verse 13. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Then God tells him what to do. Lift up your staff. Stretch it over the water. Verse 17, he says, as for me, I'm going to harden the Egyptians and I'm going to cause them to do something that will bring glory to me and to my reputation. There are four commands that are given to the nation here. The first one is, fear not. <laughs> How do you do that when the Egyptian army is coming on your heels? You have no place to go. What do you do when your circumstances are closing in to you, on you? And you have nowhere to turn. What do you do at work when that happens? How do you handle it at school? What do you do in your career when things are coming to a precipice? Well, he says, fear not. I think Isaiah has a good word for us here. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, 
whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. The Hebrew there says, Thou wilt keep him in peace, peace. Shalom, shalom. It's their way of saying absolute, perfect peace and security. God will keep us in perfect peace because our mind is stayed on him, because we trust in him. What do you do when the end of the world is coming? As it seems to you in your situation at home or at work. You keep your mind centered on the Lord and you trust in him. David said, I will trust and not be afraid. In another place he said, when I am afraid, I will trust in thee. But how much better to trust and not be afraid. Then God says, stand by. Now the natural inclination is to do something. I mean, if it's just to get into the Red Sea and start swimming to the other side, do something. But God said to the people, stand by or stand still. Be quiet. That's sometimes hard to do. God says, be still and know that I'm God. I want to tell you, if you're in the midst of danger today, if there's a Red Sea before you and an army behind you, There is a time to stand still, and this may be that time. Just to be quiet and to wait on God. Then God says, see the salvation of the Lord. God says, I want you to see, I want you to look at what I'm going to do, because I'm going to do something you can't do. Then God said, tell Israel to go forward. There was a time to stand by. There's a time to go forward. I want you to notice that God's presence separated the nation from the Egyptians. The Egyptians would have caught them had it not been for that. And uh, by the cloud of uh, the cloud, cloudy pillar by day and the cloudy pillar of fire by night, God moved behind his people instead of out in front of them where he had been. And the angel of the Lord was there, and he kept the Egyptian army back while he worked. Then God employed the basic laws of creation to do his will. Verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And so God caused this wind to be powerful enough and just put his hands down and put the water back. Now as you see this depicted in most of the movies, you see this water mounting up like this and it all comes down and there's about 10 feet in there for the people to walk through. No, it was probably more like two or three or four or five miles that God pulled the water back. Because two million people have got to get across this thing in a matter of a few hours. So it was very broad, the path that God made for them, and they went across. And then, (laughs) after they were across, God caused that army of the Egyptians, apparently during the night, to get down into the seabed. They didn't realize where they were. 
The water wasn't standing right next to them. It was miles away. And there in the night, they, they started, perhaps by moonlight, out through this seabed. And then God withdrew his hands. And the water came together again and covered them up. So that they were all killed. God changed the very ways of nature to keep his word. You can count on the fact that God is going to keep his word to you. And God will change heaven and earth, if that were necessary, to do for you what he's promised to do. That's how sure his promises are. Faithful is he who promised, who will also do it. I want you to know that you can trust God to deliver you as well. Now, it may not be the kind of deliverance that you were expecting, but you and I can trust God to deliver us. As the songwriter said, got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any red seas you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things no other can do. Will you make him Lord of your changes? The transition that you're passing through? The final change I want you to notice is at the end of the chapter, verses 30 and 31. The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Their attitude changed. There was a renewed reverence for Yahweh. Their trust in him was deepened, and also in their human leader, Moses, whom God appointed over them. Their attitude toward leadership changed. Life for you and for me is a series of changes, isn't it? However you look at it. Beloved, part of spiritual maturity is learning to grow through those changes and not groan at them. Are you growing through the changes that God is bringing into your life? God himself is a God who does not change, but he is the God of change. And he will direct and use it in our lives to further his divine purpose for us. Now sometimes changes involve history-making events, but most don't. Most changes are insignificant to others, but they can be big to us. My plea with you is this. Let Jesus Christ be the Lord of the transitions, the changes that you're passing through right now. Spiritual maturity on your part is learning to trust him without complaint in the midst of change. Will you trust him today? Will you stop fighting and rebelling and complaining and say, Lord, 
you're bigger than I am. You're bigger than the changes in my life. And I sit back and I want to be still. And God says to you, you'll see the salvation of the Lord. And when it's time, he'll say to you, go forward now. But first comes the time to stand still and to be quiet and to know that he is God. He is the God of change in your life. Would you bow with me, please? Has God led you to a point of vulnerability where you have nowhere to look except up? Praise God if that's the case, my friend. God changes direction on us sometimes to remind us who is Lord and to teach us of himself. He is more interested that you learn that than that you live in comfort and in pleasant places in your pilgrimage. God has so much to teach us of himself before we get to that promised land. Will you tell him that you make him the Lord of your changes? Will you tell him that you'll stand by and you'll be quiet? Will you not fear anymore? trust. Tell him so right now. Father, I pray that each one of us who is a child of God by faith in Christ and who is therefore a pilgrim in this world may be able to adapt to and grow through the changes that you bring into our lives. May we learn to trust you, perhaps more than we ever have in the past. May we see the goodness of the Lord and the power of the Lord. Refresh us on our pilgrim way. Renew us, we pray, with the strength, the wisdom, and the faith that we need as we march on from this camping place on this Lord's day. With our heads bowed, I wonder if you would sing with me the simple chorus that most of us know. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to for me He cares for me He cares for me He's so good to me He's all I need He's all I need.
remembering that we're pilgrims. Let's sing it this way. He'll lead me on. He'll lead me on. He'll lead me on. He's so good to me. Lord, thank you for that truth today and for reminding us of it. In a personal way, we love you. Amen. Fellowship this morning, and as the organ plays, I'd like for uh, those who uh, are being welcomed into the church to come forward. Not all of these names are in the newsletter this morning. So as I call your name, would you step out, please, and come right here to the front. Barrett and Dana Brown. Uh, Steve Brown, Sandy Burns, Steve Dennis, Lois Dobos, Mike and Alice Duzan, Stephen Elias, Larry and Mary Feldhahn, Bonnie Johnson, Marge Larson, Sherry Miskey, uh, Brian Nelson, John O'Neill Jr., Bernie Scheller, Tom and Wynn Schindel, Iris Tucker, Harold and Claudia Weens, Dan and Susan Winia. Some of the folks are here in the service. Won't you come by, those of you who are members of the church, and join me in welcoming them into our church family today. God bless you. Thank you for being here.